So, everyone enjoying the lovely summer weather? <laughs> um, well, it is Scotland. So today, this talk is the concluding part of our trilogy on the one another's in the New Testament. Um, as Toby has said, we've paused briefly in our whistle-stop talk through Exodus, and we're just taking this opportunity to engage in a wee bit of reflection about what it means to be a part of the community of God's people. And we're doing this through many, some, a small selection of the very many one another's that appear in the New Testament. Couldn't possibly do them all. That would probably take longer than the tour of Exodus. Um, so Toby kicked things off a couple of weeks ago with a look at John 15 and Jesus' command that we love one another. Then last week we considered Romans 12 and the progression from thoughts to actions to feelings. And this week we're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you haven't heard those other talks yet, don't worry too much. Um, but if you're listening to this on the podcast, Toby, and you haven't heard those other ones yet, why not start at the beginning? Just an idea. Now, before we read through this, and just by way of a wee bit of background, it's interesting to know that this, is, this first letter to the Thessalonians is probably one of the oldest parts of the New Testament. It, it's certainly amongst the oldest records we have of what life was like in a Christian community. And since chapter 5 is actually the final chapter of this letter, it might be useful to just provide a wee bit of context of what we're about to read. Essentially, the whole tone of the letter is very positive and encouraging. Paul starts off complimenting the Thessalonians on their faith and discussing his relationship with their church and his desire to visit them again. Then in chapter 4, he encourages the believers to live holy lives that are distinct from the pagan culture around them. As part of this discussion, he brings up the subject which often grabs all our attention when we read this letter because he starts to talk about Jesus' return from heaven and the resurrection of the dead. Now, what's often missed with this discussion of the end times, as we like to call it, is the fact that Paul actually puts it there as an encouragement. The Thessalonians were beginning to feel some of the persecution and stigma that came with being a Christian, and Paul's discussion of Jesus' return is one way in which he's encouraging them to hold on and stick with it. And just wave wildly if I'm fading in and out with the microphone, by the way. <laughs> and, but anyway, it, it's in the midst of this discussion on the end times that, that we begin this passage that we're going to look at today. So here goes. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Hopefully the words will come up on the screen. <laughs> I'll start reading anyway. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, 
but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, before we enter into the real meat of this talk this morning, there's just a couple of minor points I want to get out of the way before we begin. Firstly, this term, brothers. It comes up regularly in this passage, but we shouldn't take it to mean that Paul is only talking to the men. It's simply a catch-all term to refer to the entire body of believers. There's always a danger of us getting sidetracked by details like this, so I'm simply going to say brothers means everybody. Now let's move on. The second point to note relates to the general structure of the passage. Many translations insert a very unhelpful heading halfway through, saying final instructions or something like that. Partly because of that, we end up reading the second half of this chapter as though it's just a list of insignificant little points that Paul hadn't bothered to mention in the main part of his letter. But I'm not convinced by that. Instead, I prefer to think of it as a form of bonsai theology. In, in, in the same way that a bonsai tree is a miniature version of the full thing, this passage contains many highly condensed and tightly packed theological ideas that we find explored in greater depth individually at other points in the Bible. The advantage of this, of course, is that instead of simply looking at each idea on its own, we get to see the bigger picture. You see, unlike the churches in Jerusalem or Antioch or elsewhere, the church in Thessalonica was primarily made up of Gentile Christians, people who'd come to believe in Christ without first converting to Judaism. This meant that Paul was having to write to people that hadn't yet developed the full Exodus mindset, as we've been calling it. But at the same time, back in chapter 2 of this letter, Paul refers to the Thessalonians as being imitators of the churches in Judea. The general theme that Paul is emphasizing throughout this letter is one which says you're imitating the Jewish churches, you're learning from them, stick with it, you're on the right track. In essence, it's a theme of encouragement. The bigger picture that ties all these different strands together is this idea of encouragement, that we should encourage one another. Take a look at verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This verse forms the central focal point of this chapter, and by focusing on this idea of encouragement, we can divide the rest of the passage into three relatively nice, neat sections. Why, what, and how. Why should we encourage one another? What does encouraging one another look like? And how can we go about encouraging one another? So to start with the first of these, why should we encourage one another? Well, how does verse 11 begin? Therefore, encourage one another. And when we see a therefore, what do we ask? What is it there for? <laughs> well, what has Paul just been saying? Immediately before this, he's been reminding us that Jesus is coming back. We may not know exactly when, but it shouldn't take us by surprise when it happens. It's not as if we haven't been told about it. Paul is encouraging us to live pure, sober lives filled with faith, love, and hope because Jesus died for us so that we might live with him. This is why encouraging one another is so important, because it speaks to the very core of our faith. 
In Romans 13.11, Paul reminds us that salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. In Galatians 6 verse 9, he writes, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And it's the same idea here in this letter to the Thessalonians. Let's not give up, because the end is so close. We know it's coming. We just have to hold on just a little while longer. But it's when we're isolated and alone that we are vulnerable. In the same way that the Israelites escaped from Egypt as a whole people working together, so we must wait for Jesus' return as a whole people working together. And so we must encourage one another. We must build one another up, strengthening one another's ability to hold on. I actually love the way Paul adds, just as you are doing, at the end of verse 11. He's not being critical. He's not telling them off. In calling us to encourage one another, Paul is himself being encouraging. But what does Christian encouragement actually look like? It's all well and good saying, yeah, let's encourage one another. But what does that actually mean in practice? Well, firstly, it means showing respect to those who know more than we do. Verses 12 and 13. There's almost nothing more disheartening than watching people simply ignore your advice. You end up feeling run down, discouraged, and like there's no point being part of this community if other members aren't going to pay any attention to any of the contributions you have to make. But note that this isn't restricted to only having respect for people in formal positions of leadership. Again, sorry, Toby, if you're listening. Though that is undoubtedly part of it, I'm sure we can all think of people who aren't formal official leaders, and yet in one way or another more advanced in the faith than we are ourselves. Paul is simply saying, respect them, listen to them, learn from them. At the same time, in verse 13, he urges us to be at peace among yourselves. If we find ourselves in a position of authority and respect, we should not use that position to sow conflict and division. In last week's talk, Toby reminds us of the command to live in harmony with one another in Romans 12.16. And it's this same idea that is coming up again here. Be at peace, live in harmony. But encouraging one another isn't just about leadership and authority. Verse 14, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. These different commands, directed at the brothers, all reveal something very telling about what it looks like when we are truly trying to build up one another. If someone seems a bit quiet and reluctant to engage with things, are they idle and lazy? Or are they just shy and timid? Or maybe they're just feeling weak and like they've got nothing left to give. How can we possibly know which approach to take unless we talk to them? It sounds obvious, but how often have we just stormed in presuming that we know what somebody else needs to hear without actually taking the time to really get to know them first? The beautiful thing about this command to encourage one another is it forces us to relate to each other as we really are. Genuine encouragement is not a false cheeriness that just puts a positive spin on everything and leaves us feeling guilty for feeling guilty. Not at all. We can only be truly encouraging to one another if we meet people where they're really at, helping them through their struggles, warning them if they are just lazy, and giving them a gentle nudge when they're simply being shy. And throughout all of this, we must be patient. Why? Because encouragement is not quick fix. It's not a one-off intervention that will suddenly get somebody on the right track so we can ignore them and move on to the next project. We can only encourage one another if we genuinely invest in one another and commit to being a part of each other's lives. If we are to truly encourage one another, we must be patient. We must be at peace. We must live in harmony. 
essentially, we must love one another. This comes out particularly strongly in verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. The idea that two wrongs don't make a right is a biblical principle. But this is also bigger than that, isn't it? See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. This isn't just a command not to take our own revenge, but Paul says we should actively try and stop others from taking their own revenge also. And we're not only to seek to do good to one another, but also to everyone. In essence, Paul is emphasizing that none of this makes any sense if it only touches our own lives. Jesus died that we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another, build up one another, live in relationship with one another. But even that's not the end of it. Verses 16 to 18 list even more ways in which we can encourage one another. We don't have time right now to go into detail on each and every one, but there's a common theme that I want to emphasize here. These verses urge us to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. And verse 15 urged us to always seek to do good. Can you tell what the link is? Always, without ceasing, in all circumstances. We don't get a day off from being a Christian. There's no get-out clause. Jesus didn't say, love one another, except if you're feeling really tired and hungry and you've had a really bad day. We cannot give up, even for a moment. Stick with it, keep at it, because Jesus is coming back. But it's not always that easy, is it? Sometimes everyone else needs so much encouragement, we feel like there's none left for ourselves. Sometimes we're trying really hard to be patient and encouraging, but this person needs more than we've got to give. So how is it possible? If we know why we ought to encourage one another, and we at least have a general idea of what that can look like, how do we actually make it happen? Well, here Paul shifts his focus. Up to now, everything has been about things we can do. We are to respect those over us in the Lord. We are to help the weak. It's our job to rejoice, to pray, to be thankful. But then we get verse 19. Do not quench the spirit. I actually quite like the way the old NIV put it. Do not put out the spirit's fire. Sounds quite poetic. I quite like it. Anyway, the point is this. When it comes to how we relate to one another, the Holy Spirit must be involved. There's no two ways about it. We can do what we like, say what we like, but we absolutely must not get in the way of allowing God's Spirit to do his work. Especially, verse 20, when it comes to prophecy. In 1 Corinthians 14.3, Paul writes that the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The spiritual gift of prophecy is intimately linked to our attempts to encourage one another and build one another up. One of the reasons prophecies are given is precisely so that we may be encouraged by them. Without the involvement of God's Holy Spirit, any of our attempts to encourage one another are ultimately meaningless. As verse 19 says, none of the Spirit's work should be stifled or quenched or ignored. And as verse 20 reminds us, we should be particularly serious about prophecies. Now, for anyone who's spent a long time around certain churches, the idea that we should take seriously the work of the Holy Spirit is perhaps not particularly revolutionary. But every now and again, it's still good to remind ourselves of how important it really is. And if that is a concept you're unfamiliar with, you're more than welcome to come discuss it later. But there is also a flip side to this, isn't there? I mean, how often have we heard things along the lines of, oh, God told me not to bother reading the Bible, or God told me not to go to church anymore, or even... God told me to divorce my wife, murder my boss, and run off with the secretary. 
There is a very real danger in ignoring prophecies and putting out the Spirit's fire, so to speak. But there's also a danger in becoming overly reliant on the idea of prophecy and so imagining that God is speaking to us when he really isn't. So what's the solution? Verse 21. Test everything. We cannot ignore the work of the Holy Spirit and we cannot despise prophecies and treat them with contempt. But we can test them, sift them, weigh them. We can cling on to what is good and avoid what is evil. In telling us this, Paul is implicitly reminding us that prophecies themselves do not determine what is good and what isn't. In 1 Corinthians 13 verse 9, he reminds us that we only prophesy in part. Any prophecy we receive is incomplete. It is inevitably filtered through our own human understanding. And so it requires a response that is humble and acknowledges our human limitations. But it also requires a response that is faithful that takes these things seriously and does not treat prophecies with contempt. And so back to the question, how are we to encourage one another? By allowing God's Spirit to do his work. This is the importance of what Paul says in verse 23. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Receiving God's sanctification is vital. Why? Because it is only by allowing God to do his work in us that we get to a point where he can do his work through us. Back at the start of this mini-series, we heard how Jesus told his disciples that as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. John 15 verse 4. And we see that same idea here. We can only encourage one another and build up one another if we are rooted in the true vine that is Jesus Christ. And so we know why we ought to encourage one another. Because Jesus is coming back. And we know what it looks like like respect, patience, forgiveness. And we know how it's possible, through the work of God's Holy Spirit. But what if we just don't see it? What if we're still not quite feeling it and we're tempted to give up and not bother trying anymore? Verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Paul ends this letter of encouragement with one of the most encouraging statements anywhere in the Bible. God is faithful. He knows what's up. He's on the case. Just stick with him. Don't give up now because you are so, so close. God will do it. Except that's not quite the end, is it? There's still a few verses left. These final phrases are easy to dismiss as simply being Paul's way of signing off at the end of a letter. But each of them still has something to tell us about what's going on here. Firstly, in verse 25, he asks the Thessalonians to pray for him and his companions. After saying all he can to try and encourage the Thessalonians in their faith, Paul still has the humility to acknowledge that he needs prayer too. Being encouraging to one another does not mean we have to put on a brave face and pretend that we're okay ourselves. Genuine encouragement is about relationships of honesty and humility, not secrecy and false cheer. After this, Paul urges the Thessalonians to greet all the brothers with a holy kiss and to make sure that the letter is read to all the brothers, In other words, make sure nobody is left out. Everybody is to be included. All of us need some encouragement from time to time, and all of us can be an encouragement to others. If you've heard Toby's talk on Romans 12 from last week, you'll have heard the analogy between a church and the body, and how different members have different functions. And one of these functions is specifically the gift of encouragement. And we can't deny that some people do have a special role to play in being particularly encouraging to others. Indeed, Paul himself had a lot of support from Barnabas, whose very name means son of encouragement. 
But this doesn't let us off the hook. Some people may have a particular gift of generosity, and yet we are all called to contribute to the work of the church. In the same way, some of us may have a particular gift of encouragement, and yet we are all called on to do what we can to encourage one another and build one another up. And Paul makes this clear by specifically stating that this letter must be read to all the brothers. And finally, the actual final verse of the letter. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. None of what we've discussed today is at all possible without God's grace. How can we encourage one another? How can we build up the Church of Christ? Only by the grace of God. There's no point to even trying to do it through our own efforts. We must constantly draw near to God and allow His Spirit to work through us as He will. So with that in mind, I'm going to shut up and we can invite him to join us. Let's stand. Father, we just pray that you'd come and share your spirit with us now. Just encourage us and lift our hearts through the power of your spirit and draw us closer to you and to one another. Amen.